Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our impact series featuring Elevate customers implementing transformative change. In this episode, Elevate's Stephen Allen talks with Dion Harrington of Rio Tinto about outside council management programs and AFAs, programs that have resulted in real savings for Rio Tinto, including $2 million in savings on a single matter and $10 million in savings program-wide in 2020. Hi, this is Stephen Allen, Vice President of Get Shit Done at Elevate, and today I'm talking via the ether with Dion Harrington from Rio Tinto. Hi, Dion. Hi, Stephen. Could you just give people an idea of who you are and what your role is at Rio Tinto? Sure. Current role is Chief Legal Operations at Rio Tinto. During the course of last year, we restructured part of the function around creating the Office of the Group General Counsel. That was something that Barbara Levy was keen to do. So as part of that, the role that I was formerly a managing attorney, we rebadged that because uh, managing attorney, not a lot of people really knew what that role meant. But a lot of the things the managing attorney was doing was in the legal operations space. So we rebadged it, Chief of Legal Ops. We're sitting within the Office of the Group General Counsel. So a lot of those things that really apply function-wide, a big area of that space is really around external spend management, document management, knowledge management, yeah. all those wonderful things. Yeah. yeah, you keep the machine running. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little while back just as a kind of general catch-up. And I remember you were talking to me about what I kind of convert to the power of data you were. I just wonder if you could share for other people listening your, your story and your route to that, because I think it was particularly interesting. Sure. My interest in sort of capturing and using data really goes back a decade. And it was when I was leading the legal team supporting our global procurement function. Procurement being you know very transactional driven, has a highly vested interest in certain data and metrics, source to contract cycle time, for example, customer satisfaction, and there were metrics on many different things. However, the intersection of procurement and our legal function wasn't characterized by using data you know, for monitoring demand management performance. And there was quite a deal of myths around the you know, legal being a blocker, legal slow, those sort of things that I would hear. And one particular pain point was really around the end of the financial periods and that being accompanied by very urgent requests for contracts and legal support. Contracts and negotiations sort of done in days, if not a week or two. And it was one of those things that has always been the case. And so there was immense pressure on my team and it wasn't really good for team morale because they were under pressure a lot. And there were also a lot of defensive comments on the client side that um, they would throw the contract over the fence, so to speak. And then when they got asked where things were at, they'd just say, oh, it's sitting with legal. The fact that they just threw it over the fence the day before wasn't really relevant and it'd been sitting on their desk for six weeks. So I was quite curious about what was going on with this. So it was quite early on in the time that I was leading that team. So I asked my team around the globe to actually start tracking urgent request data, you know, who made it, when, and why it was urgent. And we collated that data and put it into a table representing you know, the urgent requests of the function of legal across the whole of procurement. And it showed that it was actually variable across procurement. And uh, I ended up presenting this at a leadership team meeting. So I sat on the leadership team meeting with procurement GMs. And it was data analysis that hadn't been seen before. And really, it was quite amazing that rather than me having to defend the performance of my team and really turn the discussion around in their meeting where basically the head of procurement, looking at the data, was able to question those particular GMs whose teams were the ones that had the high volume urgent requests. You know, what's going on? Why is your team 
having all these urgent requests. So a very interesting discussion ensued and a lot of questions. Ultimately, it was the beginning of lifting the lid on a whole range of processes around the use of legal. And there I've talked about those examples of contracts sitting on desks for a long time and throwing it over the de- over the fence. But I guess it gave insight into what was really happening, enabled um, us to focus on what really were the bottlenecks, drove transparency and accountability and, and really stopped that buck shifting. And the other great thing is it really improved work morale and, and people enjoying their work. So it was a very simple but very powerful learning experience and it really demonstrated to me the benefits of capturing data and, and when using it to drive meaningful insights that you can use in decision-making, tracking performance and promoting change. The great thing about that story, Dion, is sometimes you read a bit about the tyranny of metrics and how we're kind of all slaves to metrics, but actually there, the metrics freed people. It shone a light on what was really happening. Great story. In your current role, there's a number of of initiatives you're working on, but there's one I just wanted to ask you in particular about because I think it follows on nicely from data and how data can actually drive outcomes, drive better performance, all of those things, which is your spend excellence program that I know you're leading. Do you want to just give people, obviously there's there's some confidential things <laughs> I'm asking for that, but do you want to give people a flavor of the spend excellence program? Sure. So it was early 2019, our legal team, we'd implemented a number of initiatives, you know, such as introducing e-billing, refreshing our guidelines, but we weren't realizing the full anticipated value and benefits. And of course, a lot of these things have quite a long runway. We were also required to accelerate cost savings in 2020. And this was something that applied across all our functions and legal. We didn't get any exemption from that, just as every other function in the group had to deliver some hard savings. We had to do the same. So we really had to work out how we could accelerate that. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. And hopefully we can talk about that. Number one is too often in legal, and you'll be aware of this because you've been around it as long as I have, Dion, that people think that technology is the solution and it's an enabler. And I think there's a kind of realization or acknowledgement here that you had the technology, even had some of the processes, right, in terms of the guidelines, but it still needed that extra piece of thought leadership or direction or intelligence to drive it. So hopefully we can talk a bit about that. And the second thing is, I'll come on and ask you in a bit about some of the tangible benefits. But how did you get the thing up and running? What was its initiation? How did you get started? What we did, we ended up kicking off a project where we did a deep dive historic spend assessment. Yeah, this was early 2019. We rewrote to our top 30 law firms asking for our spend uh, in 2017, 2018 to provide it in leads format. And that then allowed us to put it into a platform where we could then do quite deep analysis of that spend. And so that was done as part of that project, a whole raft of different opportunities for improvement were identified. And we were able to sort of analyze those in terms of the ease of implementing against the quantity of value or benefit to be obtained, because you can't do everything in one hit. But that was kind of allowed us to then prioritize what was the low hanging fruit that we're going to go after, given that we had that mandate of delivering some meaningful savings in 2020. Yeah, I think that's always interesting, right? Because change is difficult. So trying to find change that's less difficult, easier, is always key. What did you look at first? Well, we had our e-billing platform in place, but we really needed support the back end running that. It's actually getting the resourcing right with the technology. And also there's a lot of process you need. So we, our global team, we're spread around the world. There's a hundred odd of us. There is some variability in processes on how you do things in different regions. And when you have a a single technology platform in place, you sort of come across all those friction points 
we needed some help to really embed our e-billing platform. That was sort of an easy one. And also that helped then with timekeeper management. So that was one. The next one was we had quite robust billing guidelines, quite detailed billing guidelines. We needed to do a bit more on them to make them implementable in terms of enforcing the guidelines, but the consequences of non-compliance. We also implemented a legal bill review team, you know, Elevate Services assist us with this. The legal bill review team who would leverage the technology, but also the human review of every single line item. And that freed up all our lawyers from the real pain of, on top of their day job, trawling through pages and pages of invoices for approval. So now they were getting invoices that had been through a legal bill review process. There were recommendations about what was non-compliant, but they made the final decision on whether they accept or override that. So that was kind of dealing with the spend. We also implemented one of the other areas we had identified was actually at the front end when you're engaging the firms. So, you know, running RFPs, our lawyers were doing a lot of this themselves and doing it manually through email, not having a lot of support. The more you invest in writing a good scope of work for an RFP, the better the quality of bids you're going to get. And one of the other things, we were wholly unsuccessful in applying AFAs on our matters. And part of that was, well, if you're not investing the time up front and writing the scope of work, doing an RFP, it gets a bit hard for the firms to really bid with the certainty that you need if you're going to be getting into AFA territory. So we implemented an outside council concierge where we had three desks around the region. They would support each regional legal team using technology for running the RFPs. That has been a, a great success, a bit of a slow start because it's quite a bit of change for our lawyers. But as we ended the year with a real bang, we had multiple RFPs on the go at the end of the year and we've gone into this year with a lot going on. But we've delivered some quite fantastic results around that. So it's been a real success. I think there's so much great stuff in there. There's fixing the thing up front. So fixing the pipe up front so that the stuff going into the process is properly scoped and properly deliverable. And I think your success in in being able to drive a move towards AFAs is fantastic. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about this. To actually see that happening is fantastic. The other thing I just wanted to draw out from what you said was the realization about the practical world in two respects. And I think this shows great insight, Dion. Number one is giving the lawyers the materials and the data, but leaving the decisions with them, because that will drive adoption because it takes the work off them they don't want to do and leaves the authority that they want to retain. I think that shows huge behavioral economic insight. I think that's fantastic. The other thing I like from what you said, and I think you should take huge kudos from is the fact that you wanted to make it easier to comply for the outside council with the guidelines. And I think that really is meritorious, that kind of fixing the upfront, understanding the behavioral drivers internally and the behavioral drivers externally. I think that really shows how the industry could take something they're trying to do today and actually make it work. It's quite a holistic thing because to start with, it was very much about e-billing and really reviewing invoices quite hard. But it was clear that the real value proposition is actually at the front end as well. And in fact, the scale of opportunity for us anyway, given where we're at in terms of not having a lot of resources available to our lawyers and running RFPs and engaging firms, you're generally engaging firms. There's a lot of urgency to do it. There's a lot of pressure to actually run a good RFP. There's quite a bit of process, quite a bit of time. So it was really beneficial having an outside council desk manned by qualified lawyers, actually working with our team, doing all the work and scoping up the RFPs, but also when all the bids come in, actually doing all the work, the analysis and producing a report, which 
which then goes to our in-house lawyer who's able to review the report and also get into the real detail of submissions. And this was another bit of a, an eye-opener is a lot of our lawyers didn't realise bids come in, but there's still a lot of room for negotiation. I think that's been quite a learning for a number of lawyers. You can go back and, and have a negotiation. I think the really interesting point is understanding the insight that you've displayed there, Dion, in trying to make it workable for everybody and fit within their behaviours to make adoption easier. You've been running it a little while now. What results are you starting to see, Dion? For 2020, we've looked at results. And in terms of the RFPs that we ran over the year, that 94% of them resulted in some form of fees under AFA. 88% of those actually resulted in all fees under AFAs. That's quite remarkable. We didn't have any AFAs. They weren't really part of our landscape. It was all the traditional hourly model. So that was the first one. In terms of savings at the RFP, these sort of ranged from the 4 to 94%. We had a median of 28%. And our largest saving on a matter was actually $2 million, quite tangible amounts. I presume that's just a wholesale return on investment. Right? That one on its own, pretty much, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the other thing is that by leveraging that data that we'd unlocked from that two-year spend review and from our program, we were actually able to renegotiate sort of engagement terms on some of our larger matters and actually took a far more active role in matter management with the outside council desk not only helping us with running RFPs on the front end, it's actually working with our lawyers, certainly on the big matters, bringing that legal project management discipline, applying project management trackers. And obviously that puts a little bit of work on the law firm. They get it. It's all in your interest of us having certainty on where it's going. No one wants surprises. And across the whole program, we delivered savings in excess of 10 million in the year. Wow. Quite successful. The other benefits we got was a consistency in reporting and management of all our law firm spend. With our e-billing platform, we also take the data and put that through a, an analytics platform. We've got consistency on our reporting, getting that deeper insights into the work performed and the value delivered by the firms, really reducing that administrative burden on our lawyers so that always is going to go down well. Increased confidence within our own team on exploring alternatives to the traditional hourly rate model. That's obviously been a real eye-opener for folks and a real marked refinement in the nature of the expense and time entries that get billed. Now more focused on those activities that deliver clear value. That's exceptional. There's so much to unpack there. Going from a zero standstill to deliver 10 million savings, absolutely exceptional. The stats that stood out to me most are 94% of fees under part AFAs and 88% of fees all AFA. That is a truly remarkable outcome. Congratulations. That's a really impressive result. You've talked about a couple of things that you learned through the process. And I know, Dion, you're very cognizant of that kind of continued learning. Was there a particular thing that surprised you most out of all of this? There's probably the negative and the positive, I guess, on the negative side. is just how challenging it is and that you need to stick at it. It is tough. And especially when you've got multiple technology platforms involved and decentralized teams and different processes and practices around your function. Not everyone finds technology easy. Some of the things you assume are a given, you'll find they're actually wrong. I had one of those last week and it's just astounding. The positive has a negative element to it. With all the data that we gathered, we started having a look at that data through the gender diversity prism. We're actually quite shocked and disappointed. We found across all the external fees that we paid in 2020, across all timekeepers, 30% are attributable to female lawyers. Then when you look at it just on the partner level, and this is what I really like out of e-billing and the data, is you can focus on all different levels of timekeepers. So we could just focus laser in on the partner level, and we found that the level of female participation on matters for Rio Tinto 
was even lower at 24%. When we looked at even further, we then found that five of our larger firms, the no female partners working on our matters, where they are, it's less than 5% of all fees charged. Very disappointing results. And we're working on a, an inclusion and diversity initiative. It's very important to us. As a function, we embrace it. We're working internally as an organisation. We think the legal industry has got a long way to go. We're really looking forward to defining our initiative and launching this and working with our service providers. It's disappointing, but I suppose the, the silver lining is that now you've set this up, that you can really watch what's going on. You're able to have informed data-led conversations with your legal service providers. Exactly. I mean, it takes me back to that example I shared with you, using data to debunk myths. The data doesn't lie. Exciting stuff to then have that to inform the decisions we take going forward. So we now have in our RFPs on new matters, we're now including a requirement for the firms to actually set out the diversity. We're starting with gender. We've obviously got an eye to going beyond that in due course. Dion, absolutely fascinating. I commend you on an exceptional program and I commend you on your faultless ability to round the conversation out back to the starting point. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Stephen. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. Thank you.